Well, I hope you uh, picked up a copy of the sermon notes. This is a uh, standalone uh, special message this morning that I've simply entitled 2016 Election Message, although it's going to deal with a much uh, broader spectrum than that. Uh, there'll be no PowerPoint, the reason being, if you've noticed in your sermon notes, it's a pretty wordy, it's a little different style than I normally put into print. If you didn't pick up a copy of the sermon notes, there are no blanks to fill in, so you can just enjoy the message, and then as you leave, uh, you can pick you up a copy, and I would encourage you uh, to do that. Uh, but notice that very first verse in your sermon notes from First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. I've always loved this verse. It refers to the sons of Issachar, it says, who are men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. And moving to the introduction, the objective in today's message is simply to provide a biblical understanding of the times in which we live, and then in light of that understanding, a knowledge of what Christians should do. And you'll notice there are just basically six points, and we're just going to run through these points. I'll stick to the notes for the sake of uh, time, but uh, here and there, amplify on these things to drive these truths home. So look at the very first point. Today, in America, the Christian biblical worldview is no longer dominant in our culture or in our churches. A worldview is the set of presuppositions a person believes that determines how they view the world and themselves and which influences the way they live and the decisions they make. The Christian worldview is one where a person's beliefs, convictions, and decision-making are shaped by the truths of the gospel and a relationship with Christ. In other words, where Jesus is preeminent in that person's life, in all realms of their life, and Jesus has control. Now, George Barna, he's the premier uh, researcher in the nation today concerning religion, uh, moral, and ethics. He did a study to determine how many Americans live by a Christian biblical worldview. In other words, they truly live by that. Uh, that it's what they filter all their decisions through, and this was the criteria that he used. First, belief that absolute moral truth exists. Second, a belief that such truth is defined by the Bible. So in other words, you have to say, yes, I believe there, are, there is absolute truth. That truth is defined by the Bible. And then he also included belief in six specific religious views. And here's what, what they were. That Jesus lived a sinful, sinless life. Jesus lived a sinless life. Second, that God is all-powerful and the all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules today. Third, salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Four, Satan is real. Five, a Christian has responsibility to share their faith with other people. And five, the Bible is accurate in all of its teaching. 
Barna discovered that only 9% of Americans have a biblical worldview as their basis for decision making. What was even more shocking from the study is that Barner discovered only 19% who claim to be born-again believers have a biblical worldview as the basis for their decision-making. I'll share that again. Only 9% of the American population adhere to a Christian biblical worldview that is at the center of their life, influences their life, and their decision-making process. And then when you look at the church culture, he discovered among those who claim to be born-again churches, even those in our evangelical churches, only 19% claimed that they lived by a Christian biblical worldview. And I'll probably even give you a more shocking statistic. Among young adults, among young adults between the ages of 18 to 23, the number was less than 1%. It was 0.5%. That does not bode well for the future of our nation. I share that to say it is important for followers of Christ to realize we are now living in an America where Christian beliefs and biblical truths have very little influence in the way the general public lives their day-to-day lives, the politicians we elect, the laws we enact, or the policies we follow. The majority of the American population and our institutions are secular and becoming increasingly so. It's also important to realize it was not always this way. The New England Confederation of 1643 clearly states the purpose of the pilgrims when they came to America. They wrote, the pilgrims, whereas we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity with peace. Now I've shared some of these quotes with you in the past, but I think it's important to emphasize them again here. The Connecticut Constitution, which was the very first constitution drawn up in the United States of America that was also used as a model to draw up the United States Constitution says, it is first that the form of government here established was simply an extension to the domain of secular affairs of the principles already adopted in religious matters. The mutual covenant and agreement of those associated as under God the ultimate law. It's also interesting to note that in the constitution of all 50 states, you find references to the almighty God of the universe, the author and sustainer, of our liberty. Uh, Samuel Adams, known as the father of the American Revolution, wrote, the rights of the colonist may be best understood by reading and carefully studying 
the institutes of the great lawgiver and the head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. In George Washington's first inaugural speech, he said the foundation, notice, the foundation of our national policy will be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality, persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. In his farewell speech, he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. John Quincy Adams, the second president of the United States, wrote, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. William Blackstone's legal commentaries provided the foundation of the legal system established in America. Those commentaries state that all human laws depend on God's laws which are found only in the Holy Scripture. And therefore no human laws should ever contradict God's law. Daniel Webster, one of the greatest lawyers in the history of our nation, maybe the greatest orator that ever lived, speech giver, uh, who served in the United States House of Representatives. He was a senator for 19 years from the state of Massachusetts. He served two different terms under two different presidents as Secretary of State. This is what he said in 1851. He said, Our ancestors established their system of government on morality and religious sentiment. Moral habits, they believe, cannot safely be trusted on any other foundation than religious principle, nor any government be secure which is not supported by moral habits. Finally, then let us not forget the religious character of our origin. Our fathers were brought hither by the high veneration for the Christian religion. They journeyed by its light, labored in its hope. They sought to incorporate its principles. What principles? Christian principles with the elements of their society. And to diffuse its influence through all their institutions, civil, political, and literary. Let us cherish these sentiments and extend this influence still more widely in the full conviction that it is the happiest society which partakes in the highest degree of the mild and peaceful spirit of Christianity. In an 1892 Supreme Court majority opinion, here's a shocker for you, Supreme Court majority opinion, our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense, and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian.
Supreme Court justice. Joseph Story wrote in his commentaries on the Constitution, it yet remains a problem to be solved in human affairs whether any free government can be permanent where the public worship of God and the support of religion institute no part of the policy or duty of the state in any assignable state. And then President Calvin Coolidge said, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in this country. Well, we're testing that out, aren't we, in these days. Now, here's the the point I want to lead us to. When we see the utterly sad and tragic contrast between how the Christian biblical worldview was once the dominant view in America. We're not saying that everyone were believers. We're not saying every one of our founding fathers were believers. In our early, but that was the dominant worldview, the dominant perspective that controlled, influenced, permeated all of our institutions. Well, when we see the contrast between how it once was the dominant view, revered, respected, as I just read, to where now it is viewed as archaic and insignificant, it brings us to the question in the second point of your notes. How has Christianity become so marginalized in America? How has this happened? Now, let me just pause right there for a moment. There are many, many factors in answering that question. But today, I'm addressing the church, God's people, those who profess to know and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So therefore, I want to address that question from the perspective of Christians, from the perspective of the church and the responsibility that we bear for what has happened. Look at your notes as we continue. Here's the answer to that question, why Christianity has become so marginalized in America. Because although Christians have fought in our culture for the moral values of Christianity, especially in the political arena, we have neglected the priority of living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have tried to maintain the fruits of Christianity while neglecting the root. Reality is the nation will never embrace the values of Christianity without being reconciled and submitted to the Lord of Christianity through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must realize, as believers, when we abandon the priority of living and sharing the gospel of Christ, we lose our distinctiveness as believers. And in losing that distinctiveness, we lose our influence on our culture. Power in ministry, power to influence is directly in relationship for a believer to purity of heart and life. 
Christ being my first and foremost love, my greatest passion and pursuit, my desire to advance His kingdom, His cause, His gospel, that men and women, boys and girls might come to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, You, referring to believers, you are the salt of the earth. The way that actually reads in the New Testament Greek, he says, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. There is no other. And if you do not function as salt, as a preservative, as a purifying effect, you're not going to find it any other place because this world is corrupt. And then he says, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now, folks, go back to Barner's study concerning those who live by and make decisions based on a Christian biblical worldview. When only 19% of those sitting in our churches who claim to be born again do not live by a biblical worldview, when they are indistinguishable from the lost in the way they live their lives, other than maybe going to church two or three times a month, and talking the Christian talk without walking it, then yes, that Christianity is good for nothing. And it will be, and it should be, thrown out and trampled underfoot by the culture as worthless, offering nothing of any real value. Look at the third point. Our nation stands under the judgment of God. Our nation stands. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. Not going to read all of those verses. And before I read Romans 1, let me share with you a verse out of the book of Amos. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. and, And I want to extract a principle from this verse. Of course, this verse was directed to God's chosen covenant people, the nation of Israel. And this is what God told them in a time when they had strayed, when they had abandoned and forsaken him. He said, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, don't miss that therefore, because I have chosen you among all the families of the earth, I will punish you for your iniquities. The principle is this. Greater privilege brings greater responsibility. And greater responsibility incurs what? Greater judgment. And folks, I'm not trying to say we're God's covenant people as a nation of Israel, but how can we deny God's blessing on this nation? How can we deny the wonderful position of privilege that he's given us going back to our founding And this principle holds. Where there's greater privilege, there's greater responsibility. And where there's greater responsibility, there's greater judgment. And so as we have abandoned our Christian roots, we stand under the judgment of God. Look at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I don't want you to miss this next phrase. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, circle that word suppress. That means it's not that they were not aware of the truth, but they refused to embrace it. 
They denied it. They suppressed it. They tried to put a lid on it so that they could pursue their own selfish interests. And then verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident with them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, we clearly see God in the incredible design of this universe, which leads you to the conclusion of a personal creator. We see the incredible uniqueness of man above all other forms of life with our motions towards morality, our ability to create, to dream, which brings you to the conclusion that there was a personal creator that created man in his image. And then it says, for even though, verse 21, they knew God, they did not honor him. And that's true of our nation. We knew him. We had the truth. Nor did we give thanks, but they became what? And this is what's happened. They became what? Futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. And that's where we are as a nation today. And then you can read the rest of that chapter. How it talks about, as a result of abandoning God, God abandoned them. And gave them up to their godless desires. Which led to all sorts of immorality, homosexuality, the abandonment of authority. Just the divisiveness, the tension, the strife in society. Now notice in your notes a little bit more about our nation standing under the judgment of God. That first bullet point, the slide to judgment began with idolatry, which is elevating something or someone as having greater importance than God. What are the gods of America? Well, you could answer that in a number of ways, but in my notes I said America's gods are prosperity. In other words, I'm defining that as success judged by an increasing standard of living. We just want more and more and more and more. And the other thing that is our God is personal peace. And by personal peace, I mean a desire for one's pattern of living to be left undisturbed regardless of the consequences to future generations. And that's where we are today. I mean, we're just throwing things away for our kids and our grandkids because of our greed, because of our selfishness. And our desire just to want our own way. And look at the next bullet point. Idolatry led to what? It's inevitable to immorality. Because when you abandon God, now you focus on gratifying self instead of glorifying God. And when God is removed from a culture, there is no basis for moral absolutes, which results in a lack of restraints where anything goes. And that's where we are. That Second Chronicles 28 verse 19 refers to King Ahaz. Who says literally, he brought about a lack of restraint in Judah. And as a result, they became very unfaithful to the Lord, provoked the Lord's anger, which brought judgment upon them. And then look at the next bullet point immorality inevitably led to what? Inhumanity, abortion. The slaughter of the most innocent, defenseless member of the human family. Infanticide, euthanasia. Because any country that turns from God loses the basis for the sanctity of human life. And we need to realize that the sin of inhumanity is the line God has drawn in the sand, which when crossed brings His judgment. Turn to Amos chapter, chapters 1 and 2. And let me just quickly point this out to you, this truth, this reality. 
that the sin of inhumanity, taking innocent life, shedding innocent blood, is the line God has drawn in the sand for a culture, for a nation. And he says, once you cross that line, judgment's coming. In the first two chapters of Amos, the prophet pronounces judgment on eight different nations, six of them Gentile, and then on Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. And for each pronouncement of judgment, uh, he mentions, for example, go to verse 3. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. That statement is mentioned with all eight nations. That's what, that's what opens the pronouncement of judgment. In the Hebrew, that's like a, an idiom, a, a slang saying that you've crossed the point of no return. That's what Amos is saying. In which, when he says, for three transgressions, for four, I will not revoke its punishment. It is inescapable. He's saying, at this point, you've crossed the point of no return. And then, in each case, he pronounces the specific sin that took them over that point of no return, that took them over that line that God has drawn in the stand, and then he pronounces judgment. So again, go back to verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. He's not talking about harvesting fields. He's talking about shedding innocent blood. He says, so I will send fire upon the house of Haziel. And fire is always a symbol of what? God's judgment. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of God's, referring to the Philistines, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they deported an entire population to deliver it to Edom. Talking about capturing an entire population, putting them into forced slavery. And he says, so I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, verse 7. Look at verse 9. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, the Phoenicians, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre. Look at verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because he pursued his brother with the sword. While he stifled his compassion, his anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever, so I will send fire upon Teman. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. They destroyed these pregnant women and their unborn in them. So I will kindle fire on the wall of Rabbah. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For the three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab. And then verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, God's people, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray. Those after, which uh, those after which their fathers walked, so I will send fire upon Judah. And we know what happened in Judah. As they strayed from God, they offered their own children up as sacrifices to false gods. And if you go into the Psalms and other verses, it talks about how they literally filled the land with innocent blood that cried out to God for judgment. 
And in verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. The, uh, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And then he goes on that he will bring fire upon them. So it's important for us to see that that is why we stand under God's judgment. Our nation forsook him to chase after other gods where prosperity and personal peace became more important than following knowing God which resulted in a focus on gratifying self rather than glorifying God which took all the restraints off of our society and led us into the moral cesspool that we're in today and then, and then that inevitably led to inhumanity having no basis for the sanctity of human life and destroying human life supposedly for the good of society. I remember one governor, governor of Colorado, uh, referring to euthanasia, said, it, it's not, he said, the elderly don't have a right to die, they have a duty to die. And he was talking about the economic burden that they place on the care that must be received. And then look at that last bullet point. Important for us to realize as believers, judgment begins where? Begins where? With the household of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 reads, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The church needs to be purged. The church needs to be refined. When 81% of those who claim to be born of begin believers don't even live by a biblical worldview when Jesus is not first in their lives and they're indistinguishable from a lost world we need purging we need refining look at the fourth point in your sermon notes and this is very important maybe the most important point the church's priority must be to boldly advance the gospel of Christ and use every issue in the culture war as a platform to articulate the gospel of Christ and what the gospel produces in an individual, community, or uh, culture when embraced, but also the inevitable consequences when rejected. Folks, what has happened in the church today, we've developed a bunker mentality. You know, we're, we're under assault, and we are under assault. But what's happened, instead of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing the wonderful opportunity we have to shine in this dark world, we've retreated behind the four walls of the church. And in our retreat, all we've done is become angry over all that we've lost. We've become angry over the loss of values and precepts and and, and, God, and, and the reverence of God in our... And I understand that. But it's not helping the situation a whit. It's time for us to realize who we are. We are the church of the living God. 
We are the bride of Jesus Christ, and we're to love him without shame, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are the body of Christ, to walk as Christ walked. And how did he walk? To seek and save the lost. And this culture is going to be changed and transformed one heart at a time, one life at a time. And yes, we get involved in the culture war, but my point is, you use everything. You use everything as a platform to articulate. You know, that's why I've always appreciated the ministry of men like uh, Billy and Franklin Graham. How they had the ability, no matter what the issue was that was being addressed, to always use that as an opportunity to present the glory and the majesty of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection and the transformation that can be brought to an individual through a relationship with him and through that individual change in family, community, and in culture. Look at the fifth point. And this is something we need to get ready for. And this is something as parents, as grandparents, we need to begin preparing our children for, equipping our children. But, there, but we can't give them what we don't possess ourselves. It says, in advancing the gospel of Christ, Christians need to be prepared for increasing hostility and persecution from a secular America and be prepared to follow Christ no matter the consequences. Now, why is the persecution of Christ followers inevitable in this country in this time and um, day? Well, look at those next four bullet points, and I'll go through these very, very quickly. First, the Christian belief that there are universal moral absolutes rooted in God's character and revealed in God's word for which all men will be held accountable to God. This is in direct opposition to a secular society which says the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there are no absolutes. Therefore, there can be no toleration for Christians who possess the absolutes of God's word by which all men will be judged. They don't want to be confronted. Yet it is, we have a prophetic role as a church to speak to our politicians, to speak to our nation concerning that which will bring us down, that will incur God's judgment. But we do it in such a way, as I mentioned earlier, as an opportunity to what? that there's an answer, there's an alternative through the salvation that was provided through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection because of his love for mankind, for his love for humanity. So in the gospel, yes, there's a strong message of judgment, of course, that strong message of redemption and salvation. The second reason we are going to be persecuted is the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way to heaven which is a death blow to the autonomy of man. Since Christianity requires man to turn away from going his own way and submit to God's way. Therefore, it is easier to attack Christians as being narrow bigots than to relinquish control and surrender to God. Third, the godly lifestyle and witness of believers, which serves as a light exposing sin and pointing to Jesus. Since men love the darkness more than the light, they find it easier to extinguish the light than be exposed by the light. And this is why Jesus was crucified. He was light, love, and everything you could ever want in one person. Yet that light exposed their sin, and they found it easier to extinguish him or try to extinguish him. Of course, they couldn't. 
And they're not going to be able to extinguish us. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you look at church history, wherever persecution has come, the church has thrived. Why? Because first the fires of persecution refine the church. I'm telling you, when persecution comes, when it becomes increasingly difficult to be a Christian and make a stand for him, it will weed out that 81% that claim to know him but are not following him. And it will make the church strong. It will make the church pure. We'll get back to the place where, like the disciples, we rejoice that we're worthy to suffer shame in his name and to be persecuted in his name. In his name. Uh, Look at the last bullet point there. The believer's conviction that no person, authority, or government has the right to command what is contrary to God's laws. And if they do, it is the duty of Christians to disobey. Faith in God calls the believer to stand alone in obedience to God regardless of the consequences. Acts 5, 29, remember the disciples where they were given strict commandment. You are not to teach anymore in his name. They beat them, they flogged them, and as they went out, it says the disciples said what? We must obey God rather than men. In fact, that's what they told their persecutors. And then as they left, as I alluded to earlier, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. When Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, it is not. And you see this clearly if you have a copy of your sermon notes, just the visual. It's not God and Caesar on an equal line. No, it's God and what? Caesar. God and Caesar. It was and it will and it always will be that way. And now look at the sixth point as we conclude. We are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom, but we are also citizens of the United States of America. Therefore, exercise your right to vote in a responsible manner following your conscience under the lordship of Christ. Elections are about choices. So make the choice you, will, uh, you believe will bring the best results for our nation, especially in terms of promoting and preserving Christian values concerning the sanctity of human life, traditional marriage, and religious liberty. Now, folks, I hope, as you've heard this message, I'm putting the whole focus on what? The church being the church. Getting back to living and sharing the gospel of Christ. We do not put our hope and trust in politicians or in the back. Now, all of that's important. Again, I'm not saying we should disengage ourselves from that. No, you know, you talk about salt. Salt is to be what? Sprinkled, right? Spread. And what's happened today, our churches have become like salt shakers where Christians are just poured in but they were never then sprinkled out into our society. And we, yes, need to invade every sector of our society, our schools, our literary, our institutions, our politics, every area we need to be involved in, we need to engage in. Again, looking at all of the issues that arise as opportunities to articulate the gospel of Christ. To be powerful, being that prophet, that if we reject God, these are the consequences. For example, you say, what do you mean by that? For example... You can look at history, and any single culture that ever abandoned God, that knew God abandoned God, you know what always happened politically, what always happened in terms of government? 
either one of three things. Either just pure hedonism, where every man does what's right in his own eyes, and it becomes pure anarchy, and the place falls apart. And that's what we're basically seeing in our urban cities. Just hedonism, where every man is doing what's right in his own eyes, and because of the closest there, when you've got two people, and they come to a crossroads, and they're selfish, and they want their wrong way, you're going to what? You're going to have conflict. If it is not hedonism, it's the majority rules. If you eliminate moral absolutes, that there's nothing that tells you the difference between right and wrong, then you're just left to 51%. To whoever gets, and that's why polls are so stinking important in our country today. Everybody wants to demonstrate that their position is a majority to validate their position and, and then to use that as a weapon to put down those who would dissent. And the other is just either a dictator or an elite group that gain control and power and dictate things. And that's happened in this country. You know how that's happened in this country? Through the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, those that have an anti-Christian basis, they've been able to what? Avoid the electorate avoid the American public, and go straight to the courts to get their agenda. And that's why I say promoting and preserving Christian values concerning the sanctity of human life, traditional marriage, are so very important. And that's why, I'm just giving you my position. You know, this isn't a church endorsement. This is Andy Merritt speaking. But to me, the most important issue in this election is the United States Supreme Court. The next president will definitely replace Scalia. Ginsburg is 83 years old, has pancreatic cancer. Kennedy is 80, Breyer is 78. There's a good chance the next president of the United States is going to nominate three or maybe four Supreme Court justices that will literally fix the direction of the court for decades and decades. And not only realize does the president appoint Supreme Court judges, but all the lower courts. And that is where this culture is being transformed. I mean, think about it. Think about those three things I mentioned. Sanctity of human life. We had laws against abortion in every state in the country. And in one Supreme Court decision, they were all overthrown. Every one of them. Abortion on demand most liberal abortion law in the entire world. We're more liberal than Western and Eastern Europe. Take traditional marriage. I mean, think about it. In 31 states, they had worked hard for amendments to secure the value of traditional marriage between a man and a woman. And then in a single Supreme Court decision, all that work over all those years were just thrown out. And now, it's the law of the land, same-sex marriage. It's a right that's been established in the Constitution of the United States of America. Think of religious liberty. What's happening there? The same thing. The same thing. Do you know, you know something, of course, that's precious to me is pregnancy center ministry. Do you know in the state of California, the state legislator, and it was signed by the government, put in legislation requiring Pregnancy centers, we're talking about Christian pregnancy centers that are committed to following Christ, saving human life, sharing the gospel. They require them 
to give abortion information to the women that come into them. This was appealed to the Ninth Circuit of Appeals and lost. So do you know right now that pregnancy center staff and workers in California could possibly be going to jail because their unwillingness to comply, because they should not comply? If that were to happen here, I would not comply. I'd let all my folks go home. I'd go and work at the, and just let them arrest me. I mean, we're just not going to comply to something like that. You had, a, you had a pharmacist in the state of what? I mean, we could just go on and on. I don't know if you're familiar, a pharmacist, a family, Storman family. They had a family-run pharmacy for 70 years. It was against their conscience to make available in their pharmacy an abortifacient, a prescription drug that would induce an abortion on a woman. That just went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and because of the liberal nature of the Supreme Court, they refused to take the case, and the lower court's decision held. That family's going to be run out of business because of a desire to follow their conscience under the lordship of Christ. They're a Christian family, and it's their conviction that abortion is the taking of human life. So that's my position when we come to, and, and when you come at it that way, I think there is a very distinct difference between the two candidates. Am I happy with the candidates we have? Neither one. I am distressed. I wish I had a different choice. But again, election about choices, so those are choices I have. So I simply, I'm, I'm being honest, I'm very pragmatic. What's the best choice that could possibly bring the best result for our nation? And that's how I approach this election in the exercise of my vote. I will respect you. You take a I know there are many that are struggling even voting in this election because of the two choices they have. And I understand uh, your dilemma, but I think I've articulated uh, my position uh, on that. And to be honest, I think the two choices we have is just basically a reflection on where our nation is. Corruption and immorality. Corruption and immorality. But yet there is a distinct difference between the Democratic and the Republican platform and also the stated positions of the candidates on these issues, which are very clear. And so I just encourage you to examine that. And as I mentioned, follow your conscience under the Lordship of Christ and then exercise this in a responsible way. As we go into our time of invitation, let me just challenge us. Let, let me ask, let's, let's approach it this way. Let me, let's, we sort of started with Barna's study. Let us sort of end with that. Where he said 81% of those who claim to be born again that are sitting in our churches do not live by a worldview. I mean, they may say good things, but they don't really live by a Christian worldview. Jesus is not first. He's not preeminent in their lives. We're only 19%, less than one out of five, are passionate followers of Jesus Christ. What group are you in? You're in the 81%? Actually part of the problem? And you've developed that bunker mentality? And all you are doing is spewing anger. And you have totally lost who you are 
and what the church is to be. The bride and body of Christ to shine for Jesus. This is not a time for wringing of the hands. It's not a time to whine. It is a time to shine. We were called for a time such as this. We're the only ones that have the answer for our nation. This isn't a time to retreat. It's time to advance and to advance with joy. In that balance of speaking the truth, but speaking it in what? Love. Love. And following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, are you in the 81% or the 19%? If you're in the 81%, the challenge for you today is to repent. Return to Jesus as your first love or come to know Him if you don't know Him. That's true of a lot of that 81%. You know, they made a decision just to get their ticket to heaven, but they never submitted to Jesus as Lord. And folks, as you've heard me share many times from this pulpit, the sheer absurdity to think that you can receive Jesus as Savior while refusing Him as Lord. The sheer absurdity to that. So either get saved or return to Him in your first love. If you're in the 19%, pray, God, give me the grace to stand for you, to go forward for you, regardless of the consequences. Work into my heart and attitude, that heart and attitude of the disciples who rejoiced, counted it, that they were wor- rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. And then let's prepare our children and our grandchildren. We do them a disservice if we don't begin preparing them now for the coming storm. And it is coming. It's here now. And we need to leave by example. Give them an example worth following. So please stand as the invitation extended and you just simply respond in your heart. Don't hide behind the song. And praise God, it is well. Because Jesus is in control. He said he would build his church. And he will win.